Welcome everyone. Let's get started. So I mentioned last week too, just a reminder, tonight we're starting the uh, six-week Bible for the Rest of Us course down at Good Shepherd uh, Church in South Charlotte at their Zor Road campus, which is just past Carowinds on the way to Tiga K. Uh, if you want to register the whole course, six weeks, it's only 20 bucks and includes all your course materials and child care is provided for free. So you can register here. Make sure you, if you do, make sure you register and click through that it says that you registered. But um, if you, for whatever reason, forget, you can show up tonight. They won't kick you out. They'll just register you then. So definitely check it out. But it's such a great course. It's the first course I ever developed about 10 years ago as a way of teaching people. We had a problem at the church. And the problem was we had people that were going through discipleship programs. Some of them have never read the Bible at all. You know, they were, some of them, like we had a lot of people, they were raised Catholic, and they were taught, well, we don't really read the Bible, we just go to church and do Mass and do that. Others were raised, you know, good old Southern Baptists, but they only read the Bible in verses or chapters at a time, or verses at a time, rather, memory verses, and didn't have an understanding of it. But then we had other people that had been reading the Bible and teaching small groups for like 20, 30, 40 years, and there was nothing for them. So what we created, Bible for the rest of us, over about a 10-year period was we created and, and defined it to be a course that anyone can come in and no matter where they are in their understanding of Scripture, they're going to go the next step. They're going to go deeper. And so the course has been, and, and <clears throat> it sounds like you know a sales pitch. Anybody can come and learn anything. But literally, I've taught this course for 10, 11 years now all over the world. I've taught in India, I've taught it in Africa, I've taught it here. And every time this response is the same from both groups of people, the groups who've never read the Bible, like, wow, I finally understand how to read the Bible and make sense of it. And it's not scary to me anymore. And then the other group, like, wow, I've been reading the Bible for years, but I didn't know these things. Why don't they teach this all the time? And I, the response is, well, I'm trying to, and other people are trying to, but this is just one way. And it's, it's hard because you can't get to the deep things of scripture on a Sunday morning sermon. And a lot of times in a volunteer-led Sunday morning uh, Sunday school class or a small group or something like that. So the goal is taking a, a basically what's called in seminary a hermeneutics course. And that just is a fancy word for how to read and study and interpret the Bible as a whole. Taking that and condensing it into a six-week user-friendly course. So if you aren't able to take it with us this time, then you, you're out of luck and you lose your salvation. Uh, no, if you're not able to take it with us this time, then you, you always have the option on, on my website, jmsmith.org, Disciple Dojo. You can actually order a DVD version, but this, the one we're going to start tonight, we're going to be filming, and we're going to make that into the updated DVD version that'll come out probably a few months from now. But the material is largely the same, uh, so you don't have to miss out on it. The other thing, too, while I'm shameless plugging, is it's, it's great when I get to come teach this at churches. So if you have a church, any denomination, any you know, group, ministry, college ministry, um, any small group, anything like that, I've taught it in all of these settings, and it's a lot of fun to do it together as a group. So contact me, and, and I would love to come teach it at your church or your small group. But enough of that. Let's get into numbers. Numbers 13 and 14. Um, this week, we're going to look at primarily chapter 13, but they go together as a unit. They're arranged literarily as a unit, 13 and 14. Uh, there's a structure to it 
that's, that's what scholars would call a chiasm, where it's an A, B, C, C, B, A format. Don't even worry about any of that. All you need to know is this is the heart of numbers in terms of the, the event, the defining event is this chapter and next chapter, right? This is what, um, this is, this sets the trajectory for, in a lot of ways, the rest of Scripture, the rest of Israel's history. It's a foreshadowing, in many ways, of how Israel will respond throughout their history to the covenant promises of God. And so we start off in chapter 13. Now remember the last two weeks, 11 and 12, we had these two little increasing acts of rebellion. So the first one was complaining about the food. You know, not liking the provision that God had given them with the miraculous desert bread and saying, eh, we're sick of this. We want to go back to Egypt where we had garlic and spices and cucumber and fish. And uh, so then God flares, his anger flares up, literally. Then in the next chapter, the complaint switches to the inner and the highest of the, of the leadership with Miriam and Aaron. And again, God's anger flares up. And this time, it's, uh, it's a, well, there was a lot of issues we looked at last week. Uh, the, the video, if you didn't, if you weren't here last week, catch the video, I, I titled it White Girl Problems, because that's definitely what Miriam experienced as a result of her complaining about the skin tone of her sister-in-law. But regardless of that, so then there was intercession and things kind of got back on track, it seemed. But now in this chapter, what should have been the, the exciting turning point for the people is it's going to be a turning point, all right, but it's going to go in, in the complete opposite direction. So verse 13, or chapter 13, verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, send some men to explore or spy out. The term is meaning explore, to reconnoiter, to, to go, in, go ahead of the pack and look around. The land of Canaan, which I have given to the Israelites, from each ancestral tribe send one of its leaders. So at the Lord's command, Moses sent them out from the desert of Paran. All of them were leaders of the Israelites. Now there's a problem here that you may hear from critics is that in Deuteronomy chapter 1, when Moses is recounting this about 40 years later, he says, you people asked, let us send out spies so we can spy the land. But in this passage, it says, God said, send out spies to let us spy the land. And some people will make a big deal of that, and they'll say, see, there's two different stories, and they're conflated, and we don't know which to trust, blah, blah, blah. Keep in mind, you should know this by now, coming to this study at least, Scripture is not exhaustive. It doesn't tell everything that happened around the event. It skips to or condenses to get to the main point that it wants to portray for its literary purpose. So if you wanted to harmonize or flesh this out or see what actually would have happened, there's no contradiction. The people going into the land, we don't know where we're going. We're apprehensive. Can we send, can, can we send some of our people out to see the land? Can, we just let, can they go first? And make sure things are good and, and, and you know, uh, blaze the trail for us. Moses takes that to the Lord. What do you think? The Lord says, all right, yeah, that's good. In fact, do it this way. Send leaders of each of the people, and here's how you're going to do it. So there's no conflict. You know, some, somebody, something can be from God and from people all through Scripture. All through Scripture. The whole book of Genesis ended with something that was from people selling Joseph into slavery, 
raising him up over Potiphar's house, raising him up over the nation of Egypt. That was all people's decisions. But at the end of the book, what does Joseph say? God did this for good. You intended it for evil, but God did it for good. So human free will and divine uh, sovereignty never conflict. There's not, it doesn't need to be an either or. It's a both and. So this is just another case of that. Only if you read and force a wooden literalistic interpretation do you then get some kind of problem with, with how you interpret this. So he goes on to say, <clears throat> these are their names. From the tribe of Reuben, Shamua, son of Zakur. From the tribe of Simeon, Shaphat, son of Hori. From the tribe of Judah, Caleb, son of Jephunneh. From the tribe of Issachar, Yigal, son of Joseph. From the tribe of Ephraim, Hoshea, son of Nun. From the tribe of Benjamin, Palti, son of Raphu. From the tribe of Zebulun, Gadiel, son of Sodi. From the tribe of Manasseh, which is a tribe of Joseph, Gadi, son of Susi. From the tribe of Dan, Amiel, son of Gamali. From the tribe of Asher, Sethur, son of Michael. From the tribe of Naphtali, Nafi, son of Vapsi. From the tribe of Gad, Guel, son of Maki. Now, we just read over this and blah, 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 blah. I just heard a bunch of gibberish. These names are very interesting because of, just like in the previous list, uh, the census at the beginning, the names sound really cool to people that speak Hebrew. The names are impressive names. Shamua means uh, Yahweh listens, or listen to Yahweh, or obey Yahweh. Um, Shaphat means judge, or he judges. Caleb is the fun one. Anybody remember what Caleb means? Uh-uh. Caleb means dog. Caleb's the word for dog. And it's a, it's a derogatory term. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it, yeah, Caleb means dog. And dog was a euphemism for Gentiles. And it's interesting because Caleb is not an Israelite. Caleb is the son of Jephunneh the Kenizzite. You'll find this out in Judges, or Joshua, when you get over to there. Caleb is one of that mixed multitude that came up out of Egypt, or who somewhere before then had married into Israelite. So Caleb is a Gentile, and that's super important to remember for any view of the Old Testament and its inclusion of the Gentiles into the people of God. Caleb, dog, Gentile dog. Uh, people named Caleb don't like when I point that out. <laughs> <laughs> like, well, it's your parents. They named it. Uh, but anyway, these, these names, you know, they have names like Yigal, he redeems. Um, Hosea means he saves. And Joshua, Moses will call him, his name is Hosea, he saves. Moses calls him Yahoshua, Yahweh saves, or Yahweh's deliverance. Yahoshua is shortened, or it's like, you know, like Robert, Bob, Bobby, that kind of thing. The names are the same name. They're just kind of said differently. So Hosea, Yehoshua, Yeshua. Yeshua is Jesus. I mean, that's his name. You could say Jesus, son of whoever. I mean, that's, it's the same name. That's, that's what Jesus is named for. Why? Because name him Jesus. Name him Yeshua. Because he will save his people from their sins. So that's what his name literally means. <clears throat> um, Palti means my safety. Gadiel is God is my fortune. And Gadi means my fortune. Uh, Amiel is, is with me as God or, or God of my people. Uh, the, the names, in other words, the whole point of it, these names are really impressive and godly sounding names. 
And that's anytime you see El, that's God in Hebrew. And E on the end of a word means my. So Ami El, my people, God. That's how Hebrew names work. But these are, these are impressive names and they're, they're pious sounding names and these are leaders from the tribes. These are, these are notable people, trustworthy people. These are the ones who are going to go in and scout out the land, come back and tell the people what awaits them. So the people will believe what they say because these are their leaders. Uh, these are the names of the men Moses sent to explore the land. And then parenthetically, Moses gave Hosea, son of Nun, the name Joshua or Joshua. When Moses sent them to explore Canaan, he said, go up through the Negev. And Negev means arid or parched. And it's basically everything south of the Dead Sea down to the Red Sea. And if you've ever been there, it is parched and dry and awful in terms of uh, you know, what you're, where you can live. And, and there's nobody lives there. I mean, it's pretty barren today. So go up through the Negev and into the hill country. That's where like Jerusalem, Judea, that kind of area, that's the hill country. See what the land is like, whether the people who live there are strong or weak, few or many. What kind of land do they live in? Is it good or is it bad? What kind of towns do they live in? Are they unwalled or are they fortified? How is the soil? Is it fertile or is it poor? Uh, are there trees on it or not? Do your best. Bring back some of the fruit of the land. For it's the season of the first ripe grapes. So I'll put this in mid-July, somewhere around there. So harvest season. So bring back some of this. God's promised all along, I'm going to bring you into a fertile land, a land flowing with milk and honey. You know, you're going to have everything you need. So Moses is kind of like, hey, bring some of this back. Show these people the kind of land they're going into. So the purpose of this scouting party is not as much to find out about how do we get there, because they've got the pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire that will lead them there. It's how do we, along the way, what are we going to encounter? And again, there's nothing antithetical to following God and using human judgment. We saw that a few weeks ago with uh, Moses' brother-in-law. So, verse 21, So they went up and explored the land from the desert of Sin as far as Rehov towards Libo, or towards Libo Hamath. And those are, we don't know where exactly those areas are. Remember, all this is in ancient desert arid land. Uh, it, they're not big cities. They're not roadmaps. There's no Google Earth. So we don't exactly know where these places. So whenever people start pointing out archaeology in the Bible, just know that you can put a little sock into it for sure, but it's not like they had street signs. So places that are camps may or may not be found. And sometimes archaeologists have looked for things and they've been looking in the wrong places. Because again, they're based on a lot of its oral tradition. But anyway, they go up, uh, they went up through the Negev and they came to Hebron, where Ahimon, Sheshai, and Talmi, the descendants of Anak, lived. Hebron had been built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. That's just a little parenthetical note, but it's kind of interesting. One, they went to Hebron. Hebron is going to be later an, an integral city for Israel. Um, Hebron's going to be, Saul's going to do a lot of stuff in Hebron. It's about 20 miles south of Jerusalem. It's in very hilly country. I mean, it is the hill country. I was, you go there and you'll see everything's hilly. Just hills and hills and hills. Not mountains, hills. And Hebron is also where Abraham was buried, where Sarah was buried, where Rebekah was buried. So Hebron is the land that they used to live in, that their descendants, that, that, I mean, their ancestors, the patriarchs lived in that area. So they're going home. This is a homecoming. 
Uh, and Hebron is also really old. It says it was built before Zoan. Zoan in Egypt is the Greek word for it is tennis. I think they even mentioned it in one of the Indiana Jones movies. But uh, it, was, it was an ancient city in Egypt. So this is to say, and Hebron's even older than that. And, and it's, it's a well-established old city that the people would have been familiar with. Um, so they go all through. That's where the first where they're going. When they reach the Valley of Eshkol, and Eshkol just means cluster, so it could be called the Valley of Cluster. When they reach the Valley of Eshkol, they cut off a branch bearing a single cluster of grapes. Two of them carried it on a pole between them, along with some pomegranates and some figs. That place was called the Valley of Eshkol because the cluster of grapes the Israelites had cut off there. So again, not, not just reading the English, that place was called Eshkol because the cluster of grapes. That doesn't, what does that have to do with anything? But in Hebrew, what it's saying is the place was called Cluster because that's where they got this cluster of grapes from. Now here's an interesting little, oh wait, finish it out. Uh, at the end of 40 days, they returned from exploring the land. Interesting little tidbit that just tuck this away because it's important for later theology. In this text, the Hebrew text, it says they brought out a cluster of grapes, plural, one, echad. Now, that's grammatically a way of you know, saying a single cluster of grapes. But it's really important in giving a window into the concept in the Hebrew mind of echad, oneness. Oneness is can involve multiplicity. Just as one cluster of grape, echad, one cluster of grapes, many grapes. Right? So it's one, but there's many. That's in the concept of the Hebrew number echad. Why does this matter? Well, the base proclamation of Israel, the Shema, Hero Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, one. So when Jesus comes along and his followers, he starts saying things that only God can say, doing things that only God should be able to do, and his followers later then worship him, they're cast out of the synagogues. Why? Because you're heretics. You're worshiping someone else. And only God is to be worshipped because God is Chad. The New Testament view that came later, centuries later, to be known as the Trinity, from the beginning, the followers of Jesus, all of whom were devout Jews, said, no, God's Echad, His oneness, has never prevented or prohibited Him from being incarnate. He can be, his oneness is not a, a singularity. It's not like the, the, the traditional Orthodox view that some of the Jews have, or even Muslims have, of monotheism. It's not that view of like just this singularity. Echad is oneness, but within the oneness of God, so faithful Christians can say, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. The Lord is one, but within that oneness of God, that oneness of substance, there's a multiplicity of persons. There's Father, Son, Holy Spirit. There's the ability of God to exist within Himself, within the oneness, in a state of relationship. Because if God was only one, and, and let's, say, let's take our Muslim friends for example, their, their view, their, their doctrine of the oneness of Allah, the unity of Allah. If God is one, then, and, and mathematically one, then before, Apart from creation, God can't be love at His nature. 
Love can't exist unless there are at least two parties to experience it. Love is the relationship. So that's why, for instance, in Islam, they can't say, an Orthodox Muslim can't say, Allah is love. You know, they could say Allah is loving, and what they mean by that is towards people. But the, the biblical view of God is not God is loving towards people. God is love. The three things that God's called in Scripture, love, light, and fire. And of those, light or love is the relational aspect. How can God be love if He is a... If he is a, a, a Monad, if he's a just mathematical one, love has no meaning. Love can't exist unless there is relationship, and relationship can't exist unless there is reciprocity. So the doctrine of the Trinity was a way of formulating into words, and even the words don't do it justice, this concept of God's echad nature, his oneness. And his oneness is a oneness that consists of multiplicity of person. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Father is the lover. Son, the beloved. Spirit is the love itself that radiates between the two of them in community. So that's why the Trinity, can, God can be said to be loving for all time and all space apart from anything other than Himself because His echad, His oneness, is a multiplicity, not a singularity. So my friend Michael Brown has written on this in his Answering Jewish Objections to Jesus, Volume 2, takes on theological objections, and, and rabbis that he's debated have brought this up. You know, God is one. And he goes through this beautiful, beautiful chapter on how the Hebrew concept of oneness always... Now, it doesn't teach. You can't point to this and go, see, Trinity, right here. You can't do that. Don't do that. You'll look dumb in front of your Jewish friends. Uh, they won't buy it. I wouldn't buy it if I were them either. You don't do that. What you do is you go, see this concept of oneness? It doesn't preclude God from manifesting Himself in multiplicity. It doesn't preclude it. And what we see then when we turn the pages as we go through Scripture and eventually in the New Testament is we see that fullness coming out and we see that oneness existing and only then can we make sense of how people responded to Jesus with worshiping Him without being total heretics. So that's a major aside from the text, but this is an important passage when you're looking at that oneness of God. That single cluster of grapes. It's one, but within that oneness, there's multiplicity. All right, so just think about that. Tuck it away in your back pocket. Uh, remember it whenever you're thinking about God, the Trinity, who is Jesus praying to, how does that all work. Just do with that what you will. Uh, just be aware if anybody ever says they can explain the Trinity, they can't. You can't. You can get close to it. You can give analogies that at their core are all heresy in the end. Like all of St. Patrick's analogies are pretty heretical uh, if, you, if you take them and push them all the way. What you can do with the Trinity is you can just say, look, here's what we know. We know that Jesus did and said this. We know that God is the one who only can do and say this according to Scripture, but Jesus did it. What do we do with that? We worship Jesus as God. How does that work? I don't know. I can't say. Why? Because you're talking about the very essence of God. Who, who could ever describe the very essence of God? That's why there's no analogies. There's no perfect analogy for the Trinity because by definition, the Trinity is the only example of itself. 
Because it's God, and God is the only God. He's the only example of godness that we have. So when you get frustrated, especially if you're talking with friends who aren't Trinitarian, uh, you know, Jehovah's Witness or Mormons or other, you know, it, it, it'll be, it can be maddening if you try to play it on their terms, if you try to answer their objections mathematically or philosophically or what. Instead, it's much better to do what we see in Scripture, which is just saying, I don't know how it works, but here's what he did. Here's what Jesus did. And at the end of the day, that's what I'm going to follow. And then let the theology work itself out how it will. The analogy that I use, and we're going to wrap this chapter up, but the analogy that I use in, in thinking about God's oneness is for people that are scientific-minded, is I say, okay, let's look at an example where we do this already every day. All of us do this, and that's with the example of light. If you ever sat through physics class in high school or even basic science, you learned that, well, light is, is, consists of particles, photons. They're particles. But then you also learn that light behaves like a wave. Those two things don't fit. There's no scientific way as of right now that I know of that any physicist has been able to make those two things fit. So what do they do with it? They just say, we don't know. But if we're talking about its particleness, we're going to treat it like a particle. And if we're talking about its wavelength, we're going to treat it like a wave. And we're just going to assume that, they come, that somehow it works, because it does. And every experiment after experiment after experiment, it's called the, the particle wave duality with light. And it's a great way to talk about how you can accept something, even as a rational thinking person, that philosophically shouldn't make sense. But it does, because you see it happening. So... Do with that what you will, but let's get back to numbers. So they brought these clusters back from the land. They came back to Moses and Aaron, verse 26, and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. There they reported to them, and the whole assembly showed them the fruit of the land. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land which you sent us. It does flow with milk and honey. Here's the fruit. But, so in other words, God was right. He kept His promise. This is the land that we're in, inheriting. But, the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there, or Anakites. The Amalekites live in the Negev, the Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites live in the hill country, and the Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. So this is their description of the land. Hey, the people there. Now, who are the, who, Anak, what does that mean? Anakites, what is it? Well, Anak is just the Hebrew word for neck. Like, if you're going to choke somebody or put a necklace on them, you're, you're going to anak them. You're going to put something on their neck. So some people said, well, this, the, the, it's, it's a figure of speech. We saw people of the neck. And that was a, a, an idiom for describing large people, tall people, long necks, tall, up high. Others have said, no, it describes this neck armor that they wore. Eh, do with that what you will. I don't care either way. But the point is, the people there are mighty. These are big people. These are not weak people. And the crowd gets nervous. And so then, verse 30, then Caleb silenced the people. Literally, Caleb hushed the people. Uh, Sheshe is the word. Hush, hush, hush. <laughs> I love that. Dog. The Gentile dog stands up to the <laughs> Israelites with the proper godly pious names. And he's like, shh, all of you, hush. He said, we should go up and take the possession of the land for we can certainly do it. In Hebrew, he said, we should absolutely go up because we can absolutely do it. It's the infinitive absolute in Hebrew. It's very emphatic. Verse 31, But the men who had gone up with him, 
said, we can't attack those people. They're stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, the land we explored is one that devours those living in it. All the people we saw there were of great size. We even saw the Nephilim there. And the descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes and we looked the same to them. And this is when they start to lie. We know they're lying. Yeah, the Anak, the Anakim, they're big. They're, they're big warriors in Canaan. Egyptian texts from the 13th century mention Canaanite warriors, fierce warriors that are, they, they say, between seven and nine feet tall. Do with that what you will, but that's a not outside the Bible. They're not Nephilim. Nephilim were these figures of, of primordial terror in this ancient world. They were either demigods, giants, or mighty warriors. One of those three views. Whoever they were, they all died in the flood. The only time they're mentioned is before the flood, Genesis 6. And they're the reason, part of the reason, God sent the flood. And who survived the flood? Noah, his family. How many Nephilim survived the flood? This many. There are no Nephilim in the land. This is the report, this is the spies coming back and spreading among the people. They're boogeymen. They're boogeymen in the land. We can't do it. There are these monsters from old. There are these giants. The ones, they didn't die in the flood. He, that's the effect that it would have had on the people. And so they leave it where we leave it today. Is Here's what they brought back. They have tangible evidence of the goodness of the land. And all but two of them, and, and Joshua's silent at this point. Later we learn that he spoke up and sided with Caleb as well. But Caleb was the only one, the Gentile dog was the only one who said, we can do this. And the implied reason is because God has promised it. We can do this. God's promised it. But the people, they saw boogeymen. They saw mythological giants. They saw fortified cities. And they seemingly don't remember that their God has already destroyed the most powerful army in the history of the world at this time by drowning them into the sea. So, for whatever reason, they look at the problems, they only see the problem. The problems dwarf the promises. And next week, then, we'll see how this shakes out. But we're out of time. So have a great week, and we'll see you next week. If you want to register for the class, come right here. You can register for it. It starts tonight at 6.30.